You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to the Worship Review, where we critically examine Christian worship music that is being sung by and in the church. My name is Tyler. I'm a graduate student at a Midwestern university in the central United States, and I study linguistics. And this is my co-host, Colin. I'm Tyler's co-host, Colin. I am a history professor, uh, also at the same institution in the Midwest of the United States. Indeed. And today we're going to take a look at a song quite popular, not just on Sunday mornings, but also on Christian radio. And that is called Holy Spirit by Francesca Battistelli. On this podcast, as you know, we try and answer three questions. What or who is the song is a what or who is the song about? Uh, what actions take place in the song, and how clear is it? So let's take a look at the first question. What is this song about? So this is a direct address to the Holy Spirit. And this song is always referring to the Holy Spirit, even when the Holy Spirit is called Lord or God. This is still a reference to the Holy Spirit, although maybe that's not always clear. So there's the Holy Spirit who's being addressed, there is also a collective we that is singing. So there's a, a we. And then there's also times when there's an I. There's, so there's a first person plural singing and there's a first person singular. I think there's a kind of logic too to when the first person plural is singing and the first person singular is singing. But maybe we can get to that in a little while. I would love to. I picked up on that too and I have some... I have some thoughts about that. So what you're saying is this song, even when it says Lord and God, is primarily, maybe even exclusively, directed at the Holy Spirit. I think so. There seems to not be a trinity in this song, and there seems to not be a son, and there seems to not be a father. So we see Lord coming up again and again in a refrain, your presence, Lord. And I think just based on the way that the song's grammar works, like that line tends to follow comments that could be best understood maybe as the Holy Spirit, although sometimes even that's not entirely clear. So that's where Lord comes in. And then there's God in the chorus. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Right before she says God in the chorus, she says Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God. So either the Holy Spirit is God's glory or the God that's being referred to here is the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, but I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I would also add concerning the first person plural group, 
It seems like this we and us desires an experience through this song, through the singing of this song and through the repetition of some of these lines. The goal here, and it's it's even stated a couple of times explicitly, uh, the goal is for us to be overcome by your presence um, or to taste and see the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free uh, and my shame is undone. So it seems that uh, the song is direct, uh, directed at the Holy Spirit, and it's being sung by a group of people that specifically desire an experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes. The group is desiring, is longing for, is wishing. And then when we maybe we can talk about it shortly, but the, the individual is the one that actually seems to be experiencing the thing. Very good. So that's what and who the song is about. Let's take a look at some of the actions that take place here. Colin, as you read through this text, and just as a reminder to our listeners, we don't listen to the songs before we've read the text, so that's why I use that verb. As you've read through this text, what actions did you see come through? So, God slash the Holy Spirit does only one thing, and it's a, that I could see, and it's a state of being verb. The Holy Spirit is our living hope. That's the only thing that I think I see God actually doing. All other actions seem to be actions, either the collective worshipers, and usually they're actions of beseeching God. They're asking God to do something or for him to be somewhere in some way. God, the Holy Spirit, is existing somewhere. That's that's the, his main action, is he just is somewhere. And then the collective we, the worshipers, are engaged in various kinds of requests mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, we have, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence, Lord. We may have to take that line by line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence. Let's start with Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. The worshipers are not exactly giving God permission, but there's something kind of like that where, again, God is existing somewhere else. God's God the Holy Spirit is somewhere as a hoped-for presence, but that is not yet present. And then there's a kind of invitation almost, or a... Declaration of welcome. Yeah, exactly. It is true that you are welcome. Yeah, here. again, it's not quite what you have to do to let a vampire into your house, <laughs> but it's it's on that level. There's, yeah. there's It's a, actually not far from, if you've ever heard of Ouija boards and seances and stuff, they declare that certain spirits are welcome. There we I'm go. I'm not saying that no. that's what's going on here, <laughs> but it is a similar... Yeah. Uh, they acknowledge that they don't have the authority to command spirits... Yes. Just declare safe spaces for them, I guess. I guess, yeah. So God has given a safe space. Maybe that's the best way to put it. God has given a safe space. I hate that I use that term. <laughs> um, you know, so, which is funny because I don't know. I don't know how much biblical grounds there is 
for us to be welcoming God. There's a lot of biblical grounds for God to be welcoming us into his presence. As a Christian, we also acknowledge that we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit um, and that he not only does not need our permission per se, or not only does he not need our welcome, but in the denominations and theological strains that you and I occupy, he did that against our uh, against our wickedest self-will, against our yeah. selfish motives, against all hardness of heart. We were actually regenerated and indwelt by our by the Holy Spirit because of faith in Christ. Right. So the singers of this song presumably are all believers, unless they're trying to sing as an evangelistic tactic to get people to convert. Yeah. And in that case, certainly I don't see an issue with declaring that God is welcome in a place, but it's almost obvious as declaring that sunlight is welcome to enter through a window or air is welcome to fill a room. Yeah, it's at best a, like a redundancy. But even even that, there's a there. I think there's still a presumption there that's problematic, right? If you really understand how God's presence works, you recognize that no words that you say can make any effect on that. So why even say them? Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost offensive. Like if you're married and you say to your spouse, "You're welcome to come to bed tonight." Yeah. It, well, thanks. I already knew that. Yeah. And since you would say that, it almost implies that there would be doubt cast on yeah. that. So let's just best not say things like that to our spouses. Yeah, or to God. Or certainly <laughs> to God. Agreed. Okay, so we have that. That's the first line. Yeah. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Second line. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Okay, this is a bizarre request, I think. The charitable reading is that the author is kind of resting in the realm, roughly, of where we see the glory of God filling spaces or manifesting itself, as it were, in the Old Testament. So, in particular, like God's presence filling the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, we also have references to God, God's presence filling the heaven. And normally there's some physical manifestation of that. There's it, like when scripture is talking about God's glory or God's presence filling a place, it's, it is manifest in some empirical way. And by empirical, I mean it's perceivable through the senses. So, God manifests in a cloud or with a light or with fire or just some in some visible way, not through glitter dropped from the air ducts, <laughs> uh, our, our friends at, at Bethel Church. Uh, so, it, it, it's, it's a visible thing. We, we also know even that there's a broader sense in which we can think of God, God's presence filling an area or God's glory. So, like, God's glory fills the earth even. So, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah has been snatched up into, like, the throne room, and he sees the throne room of God in the temple. These seraphim with six wings are calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And even then, I think what the angels are saying 
relies upon this idea of manifestation, that there is evidence of God's worth across the entire earth. Like, it's seen in His creation. It's seen in the stars. It's seen in in the good things that He does. Like, it's, it's all over the place. In other words, there is really no special need for God to fill the atmosphere or flood this place. And I'm not even sure how He would do that necessarily, because He is present in an empirical reality. I don't know what they imagine would physically fill the atmosphere or flood this place. So, it must be some kind of metaphorical flooding and filling, or even an inward flooding or filling. And I think there's something to that in the fourth line of the chorus, where the request is to be overcome by your presence. So, it's actually an emotional filling, the emotion of being overwhelmed that they're asking to come in. But that is not exactly consistent with the scriptural view of what the manifestation of God's glory does. In scripture, a manifestation of God's glory is not inside, it's outside, it's empirical. Right. When Moses is to look upon God, God says, well, you can't look at my face because anyone who does that will die. So, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover it with my hand and I'll walk by and I'll remove it and you can see my backside. Mm-hmm. That's what you can see. And so, right. Moses then does, in, in, in that sense, see God, uh, but in a way that obviously elevates God's holiness, his uh, set-apartness, yeah. uh, his inability to be looked upon with the naked human eye clearly, without destroying that eye. Right. And even the burning bush is a manifestation of God's glory, of God's worthiness. Still, it's clear that uh, it's it's more than just a, a bush that happens to be burning because right. the bush is not consumed. So, yes. there's clearly something more, yes. something deeper going on here. Yeah. I have to say, when I, when I read this line, come flood this place and fill the atmosphere, I, these are two verbs that actually, I took this way too literally. I was just thinking of fluid dynamics. If, if you remember from high school physics, if you, have a, if you have a volume, no matter what shape it is, and you put a gas in it, the gas will expand to fill that volume in every way. And I was thinking, it seems to me that the singers of the song, or the authors of this song, to be specific, are describing the Holy Spirit's presence in a way that's much like gas in a volume. It's much, it's, it's much like a, almost an ethereal ethereal cloud of of something that comes and fills the atmosphere. They're not talking about the Earth's atmosphere, I think. They're talking about a, a room that they happen to be singing it in, right? Yeah. So, it's, it's a strange place to go. It's yeah. not the same thing as what you were describing in Scripture, where we have these tangible images of God uh, that are laid out in a, in a way that's sensibly, in the terms of in the senses, perceptible. They say the word atmosphere, which has a very, like, scientific-y connotation to it, which, of course, they just picked because it rhymes with here. I think so. <laughs> but it's just kind of a weird... Again, so you have to take atmosphere in this metaphorical way. Like, right. they're not saying fill, you know, the layer of air, you know, between, the, you know... <laughs> this. This small, thin right. layer of air that surrounds right. a heavenly body. They're, they're not singing this on an airplane at 32,000 feet, where they're actually up in... Is that they in the atmosphere at that is point? That the stratosphere? stratosphere? But I, no, that's, uh, I think the stratosphere is a layer of the atmosphere. Oh, okay. But there are different layers yeah. of the atmosphere. So, yeah, I, I don't know. 
it's weird. It's yeah, it's just an uncomfortable metaphor, not a metaphor, excuse me. It's an uncomfortable word to use after using words that are also kind of technical, like flood and fill. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking of fluid dynamics, water. water, maybe air filling a vacuum, water filling a space. It's just odd. It's yeah. just odd. That's all. So now that we've looked at that, let's take a look at the third line of this chorus, because I think we can start to see what is actually behind these images of fluids filling spaces. Yeah. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for. So this is a holy Christian desire to glorify God, and it, this is expressed quite clearly in the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So to say that your glory, God, is what our hearts long for is quite a healthy desire for the Christian to have if understood correctly. Wouldn't you say, Colin? Yes, that the church is recognized as important. We bring up the the catechism to signify that this has been well established by scholars that this is the chief end of man, to desire to be a part of the glory of God, to be trophies of God's grace, to to reflect God's glory back to Him. We should underscore and affirm this desire. Yes. But if I may move on to the next line, mm-hmm. I think we see quite a clever turn of phrase here yes. that shows cool. that what is desired here is not the glorification of God for his sake or for the sake of his glory. It's something else. So if yeah. I may, the fourth line is to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Remember that too follows from your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. So this is being tacked on to the longing from the previous yes, line. Yes, it's clearly connected. It, it has to be understood yeah. as being connected. And in that case, the glory that we long for is actually a glory that would overwhelm us. And you see that in the refrain, right? is what we're longing for. Mm-hmm. It is the experience of his glory and of his goodness. Yes. So anytime there's longing, 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 wishing, 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 hoping for this overwhelming experience, it's out there. It's not yet here. And when that actually happens, it happens to the individual. We get the I and the me. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone, your presence, Lord. That's all speaking now of something that's happened in the past. And the pronoun has switched. We're first person singular. So there's longing, longing, longing from the collective we, and then the individual experiences it, which ties back to, I think, what you're saying about this desire to be overwhelmed by your presence. It's a desire It's a collective desire for an individual experience, which again goes back to the inside, the emotions. That is just a a definitional mystical experience, an inside emotional awakening, feeling, 
a sense of being overwhelmed. So that's not happening collectively on the outside with a collective we. It's happening on the inside with the me. Mm -hmm. And we might also add that the experience desired here is one of overwhelming. It is a feeling of overwhelming, Mm -hmm. which it should be be clear that that is even quite different than medieval mystics who might have wanted a communion with God and maybe a a sort of a mystical conversation with yeah. Jesus. Or, or someone like Tozer, uh, who, again, we would see as a mystic, but not necessarily in an unhealthy way. Right. But the desire to be overwhelmed is inherently one that will incapacitate us in yeah. some way. It will make us, it will maybe a kind of catharsis or some way in which we are incapable of interacting with the world in a sober kind of way that we yes. normally would. And that the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that the kind of experience that Christians are to have? Yeah, I think the answer has to be no. I would say I think no. the weight of Scripture is on being sober-minded, self-controlled, self-governed, and uh, governed by God. And it seems to me that in sobriety, drunkenness, em- emotional absorption, wrathful anger, for example, is another example. Yeah. These are all states of being that scripture condemns. And it's also a state of being that God wanted to protect Moses from as he was passing by. He he wanted to keep him from being overwhelmed. He knew that Moses would be overwhelmed if he were to look at him with his naked eye in the face. And I would more gladly follow that example than the example of being overwhelmed, incapacitated in one way or another. Yeah. When we, when we are in Christ's presence at the end of all things and the beginning of eternity, which will be always be the beginning of eternity because there's no time there, we read about overwhelming scenes when we look at, say, Revelation 21, God wipes away every tear and these just sound overwhelming. Like we imagine ourselves just being emotionally overwhelmed. But I don't know that we see a warrant for that in Scripture. If anything, we understand God fully. And it doesn't overwhelm us in the sense that it incapacitates us. It causes us to do what we were meant to do, That the, what the Catechism says. It causes us to glorify God in a pure, conscientious, and coherent way. So, when we are in God's presence and we are sinless and we are in the new heavens and the new earth and glorified bodies and all those beautiful things that we think about that overwhelm us now, I don't get the impression that we will be overwhelmed. We'll be in awe. We'll be amazed. We'll be enthralled. We'll be, we'll be excited. We'll be exuberant. But we aren't going to be drunk with emotion. Colin, what would you have to say to someone curious about the clarity of this song? So this is kind of in your wheelhouse, so you can come and add some things onto this. The first thing that struck me about the song is just the grammar is a little bit weird. There are a lot of incomplete sentences or half-complete sentences where there's like most of a sentence, and then the next line will also have most of a sentence, and it's not clear if they connect. So, for example, take the first two lines of the song. There's There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. So, is that one sentence? There's nothing worth more that could ever come close to what? I, I 
Yes. Do you have a thought. I do. Tell me it your just, thought. As I was thinking through that, because both of these are meant as items of praise, right? There's nothing that could compare to you. There's nothing worth more than you are, right? That's what's implied by each of these, right? Yeah. But if I said there's nothing worth more that could ever compare, what I mean, what I'm trying to say is there's nothing worth more th- more than you are. Nothing could ever compare to you. But what I end up saying is there are some things that are worth more, but nothing that could compare to you, right? If I say, do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? There's nothing worth more that could ever compare. It seems to imply, now, that's not what they mean, but it's just interesting because the, the product of lazy syntax is confusing and yeah. obviously misleading lines that you did not intend. Yeah, we see it all the time. I don't know why it's so hard to use complete sentences. That would just help clear up doctrinal issues sometimes in songs. There's another weird one just even in that first verse. So the third line, No thing can compare. No thing can compare. She doesn't say nothing. She does say nothing can compare somewhere else in the song. She says later, she says, there's nothing worth more. So she knows how to say the word nothing. But she explicitly says no thing. And I think there's a reason for that. And I'm only, I'm speculating. But if we think about all that we've said about the kind of mystical nature of this song, I take thing here in the context of the song to mean physical thing. So it sets up the kind of mystical payoff that's going to come later in the chorus. No physical thing. But there is this emotional thing or this Mm. metaphysical thing or non-physical thing that we can experience. But then it's weird because she says later in the verse, I've tasted and I've seen of the sweetest of love. So she's saying that that is something she's tasted and seen, which is an empirical statement. Now, obviously drawing off Psalm 34, 8. No, I I agree that those are two verbs of sensory perception, tasting and seeing. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. She says, I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Uh Uh-huh. Unfortunately, this song doesn't make clear what sort of bondage or slavery her heart was in. Yeah. But whatever the sweetest of loves is, and I'm assuming that's the the love of Christ, or is it mm-hmm. the love of... It's It has to be the love of Christ. Let's be generous here. Yeah. This has uh, freed her from... It's, it has freed her heart from something, and it has undone her shame. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think these are probably perfectly fine things to describe the love of Christ doing in a person. But as we have seen with other songs, often slavery is hinted at, but it's never clear what we've been in bondage to. And it seems like in this song, we have been freed from some mystical kind of bondage and freed to a mystical kind of praise or experience. Yeah. I want to go, I want to say a little bit more about I've tasted and seen, which as I said, is a reference to Psalm 34, eight. It's as if to say that the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, because that's what the song is about, is not physical, but we still sense it with our taste and our sight. This is playing off that very well-known verse in Psalm 34, eight. What David 
seems to have meant, though, in the context of this psalm, it would be good for Christians to understand what I've tasted and seen means in the context of the psalm. Psalm 34 is talking about when David pretended to be insane before Abimelech, and this caused Abimelech to drive David away. And so, he was delivered out of a challenging situation. David doesn't ask us to taste and see God's mystical presence. David is asking us to taste and see the physical, the the goodness of God as manifest in the physical world, in our lives. So, Psalm 5111, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is a psalm where David is grieving over his sin after he's been confronted by Nathan. Or Psalm 139, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Or Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, my soul long, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And then verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, which is again a reference to a physical place, God's tabernacle, almost certainly. It could be the temple, but just based on when it's written, it's probably the tabernacle. So, God gives us His presence, and His Holy Spirit is present with us. It's not something that overwhelms us emotionally. It's actually part of an empirical reality. It's part of being a new creature in Christ. We don't have a moment when God's Spirit just comes even more and overwhelms us. That doesn't, there's no biblical warrant for that. His presence is with us, It's there. We see it manifest in our lives. We see it every time we open God's Bible and understand it. We see it every time we pray. We see and taste God's presence every time we taste food that we didn't earn, that we shouldn't get. God's goodness is being manifest to us in the physical world by means of what we have tasted. So, the idea of tasting and seeing being used to call upon some kind of extra double plus good, spiritual, emotional, mystical, inward experience, I don't think is is warranted in mm-hmm. Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, if we look at the book of Acts, where we see the Holy Spirit being described as being poured out on people or filling people, where we see multiple examples of this, generally that's a that's a conversion experience when we yeah. see that happen. Or yes. Pentecost being a notable uh, yes. um maybe counterexample to that, where they're they're being filled with the Holy Spirit to then proclaim the gospel to other people yes. in different tongues. But uh, in, I think, Acts 10, uh, we see the Holy Spirit filling people as a response to the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel. And so, mm-hmm. we are, I think we are meant to interpret there that the Holy Spirit is uh, filling people who were not Christian and have yes. now responded in faith to yes. the gospel. Yes. Not, they were Christian, but they were kind of down on their luck. Yeah. But then they, you know, they welcomed the Holy Spirit and longed for the presence of God and then had an experience where they were knocked off their feet. and. Yeah. Yeah, it started like sobbing uncontrollably or, you know, had some emotional catharsis of some kind. Right. The presence of God is something that we get as Christians, and it never goes away from us. So, and that's the greatest gift that we could possibly be given, is God himself. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
So, in all of these Psalms, when there's this discussion of God's presence, of God's spirit, how we can't hide from his presence, how being with him is better than, for one day is better than a thousand elsewhere. These, it's all pointing to the assurance that we have of God's presence mm-hmm. and the, the permanence of God's mm-hmm. presence. And I don't want to step on doctrinal toes here, but even Pentecost. Pentecost seems to me, well, it doesn't seem, Pentecost is never repeated again in Scripture. It seems to be a one-time event. Otherwise, I think we would see that sort of thing happening over and over and over again. We don't see it. It's not, it doesn't, it's not showing us a model for something that we can do to you know, have a fire above our head miracle happening over and over and over again. We know from Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come to us. And a guarantee cannot be revoked. That yeah. By definition, it would not yeah. make sense to be a guarantee. We have the Holy Spirit. He is with us. We don't, thank God, we don't need to welcome him into our services every Sunday morning. No. Uh, that is God's, this is God's universe, yeah. and he will do with it as he pleases. Yeah. And God has promised us this, when two or more are gathered, there I am, right? There I am with you. He's not saying, if you do this, I will come. He's saying, it. this is true. This is the way it is. It's like a law of physics. If Christians are gathered, I'm present with them because I'm present in Christians because mm-hmm. they're my body. And thank God for that. I am troubled by the idea that we would need this kind of experience perhaps regularly. Yeah. So, in uh, this in this song, she says, I've tasted and, and seen, as you mentioned, of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free. Mm-hmm. Notice that that's no longer in the perfect past tense. So, it's, right. that's not something that has been accomplished. That sounds like it's a regular yeah. habitual thing. And my shame is undone. It's possible that my heart became free and has been made undone, and that's, that's settled. But I get the impression that if I am overcome with woe or burdens— and I want my heart to become free, and I want my shame to be undone, then what I need is to seek this cathartic experience. Yeah. And and that's a little bit troubling. Yeah. Let me say, as I don't normally give advice, I guess, to listeners, but for those of you who feel like you need those emotional experiences, I would encourage you to, rather than see God's presence is something you need to summon or that departs from you and then comes back. I would just encourage you to go back into scripture and read the promises of God where he he makes it very, very clear. His presence does not go away. If we feel that God's presence is not there, it's not because it isn't. It's because we ourselves have lost our perspective. And so, because God's presence is, is always there, we simply need to see it. And the best place to see it is in his word. Open up the Psalms and read them. You know, open up the Gospels and read about Christ's presence on the cross. We're about Christ on the cross and know that because of that, God's presence is with you. Don't ever think that you need to do something to get God to return to you. That no sin is going to cause cause God's presence to depart from you because if you're forgiven in Christ, then you can know that because God accepts Christ, he accepts you. And so therefore, his presence doesn't depart from you no matter what you've done. So I would avoid trying to think in the way that I th- that this song kind of plays off of. Avoid thinking as though God's presence is, is this wanton, fickle, fleeting thing. Yeah, it's not. 
thank God for that. I yeah. I am so comforted by the knowledge that, despite my sin and my shortcomings, that Christ never loses his merit. Mm-hmm. And I am in Christ, and my merit is therefore Christ's merit. Yeah. Now I'll ask you, would you recommend this song to churches that are looking for songs to sing on Sunday? This is a song which does address the Holy Spirit. And in that way, the song is a little bit unique. There aren't a lot of songs that do that. And so I could see the temptation for some worship leaders to say, hey, this would be a neat song to do because it addresses the Holy Spirit. (laughs) At the same time, the song doesn't have a lot of gospel, if any. It doesn't have really Christ, apart from this inference that I think you make, but and rightly so, but we have to infer Christ. With a few exceptions, there are probably about three lines. Most of the song could be sung about a beloved person whose presence we really like to have. There are a few, there are a few lines where clearly like oh, the Holy Spirit is being addressed. But if we change the word Holy Spirit or God for my best friend, Joe or something, then, you know, this song would be accurate about about a best friend or a spouse or something like that. So I would say I I wouldn't recommend. There are just far better songs to do. I would have to agree with you that I would not recommend it. I come down on the no side for a few reasons. I don't come down far on the absolutely not side, but I think yeah. that there are there are enough issues with this song that it's that would be ill advised to bring it before a congregation and have them sing these things to God. What this song does is it co-opts the gospel narrative into the attaining of an emotional state rather than having the emotional state be a secondary issue that we deal with in other realms than our worship. Which is a shame because it is good to long for the presence of God. As I said, the great, the whole point of everything, of Christ's work, of the story of redemption— is to reconcile us, bring us into the presence of God that we might glorify Him. That The presence of God is a very good thing to long for. It's just a shame that the execution in the song is is just not at, at a standard where I could recommend it. Mm-hmm. So, Colin, what would you give this song out of five? I give this song two out of five bad breakups. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what? Uh... <laughs> Why, why did you give it bad breakups? <laughs> because this uh, this woman wrote a song called no! The Breakup Song. This was my rubric. I'm so mad. <laughs> Listeners, I had this idea too, just so you know. <laughs> we, it's great because we don't talk about these things. So we end up, it's funny where our humor ends up going. Yeah. So this woman had this song called The Breakup Song where she, it's a weird song where she talks about breaking up with fear, I guess. But it's... She notably in the song says, you are not welcome here. So it seems like she's kind of playing the same tactics with yeah. fear that she played with the Holy Spirit, but yeah. in, in the inverse. So she's now marking off spaces where fear is not welcome. Yeah. But she talks to fear like a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. And and it, it models some of the Jesus is my boyfriend themes that you might find in this song too that yeah. we didn't address. Yeah. So what, what was your... I'm so mad. I was gonna. I, I'm just gonna give it what I was gonna give it. I give this song a two out of five breakup songs. That's so funny. We went to exactly the same place. All right, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoy discussing these things, and we really appreciate having your feedback, having 
you guys at the table in a way by doing that. And so we'd encourage you to shoot us an email, write us a review, and tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.